0: You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, And as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Ladies, I am so excited to continue the conversation that we started at FinCon. So we were all on a panel together talking about wealth creation for women of color. And the conversation was so juicy that I'm like, wait a minute, we cannot end this here. There are too many gems to be dropped. And so I wanted us to get together and basically do like a follow-up episode where we're really diving into our personal stories and drop in all the wealth-building gems because you guys have all different kinds of expertise. It's an amazing panel of women that we have here today. So let's start off with some introductions. Let's start off with you, Jitali. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Cheers, everyone. I'm Dr. Jitali Bellington, PhD in neuropsychology, real estate investor, and creator of Kids Who Bank, a youth financial literacy organization, which has gone into over 290 schools around the United States. And now we're starting to tackle colleges and more adults. So I'm happy to be here and make sure that generational wealth is being built and not taken from us.
0: Absolutely. Here for it. Devon, how about you? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hey, hello. Hello,
2: everyone. My name is Devon Rees. I am the president and founder of Devon Group. We are a hotel consulting and investment firm as well as the CEO of Vestor, which is a crowdfunding platform where both accredited and non-accredited investors can invest in commercial real estate, including hotels. And I am also the co-owner of three hotels, three branded hotels across two different states. So I'm excited to continue the conversation
3: uh, from FinCon. So thank you for having us. Love it. On lease. Hi, everyone. I'm Anne-Lise Wealth. I am a recovering CPA, personal finance educator. I have been working in finance and accounting for the past 15 plus years. And few years ago, I got really interested in adding my voice to the conversation when it comes to building generational wealth. And so I launched my first company called Dream of Legacy and released my first book called Dream of Legacy, Raising Strong and Financially Secure Black Kids. Since then, I have been writing, and my goal really is to normalize Black wealth, talking about investing, leaving a legacy, educating the next generation. That got me to launching my second company, which is the ALW communication agency. And I focus on storytelling and PR and branding for people in the personal finance or wealth building space to help them amplify their stories. One thing that I also would love to touch on today is I identify as a second generation wealth builder. And so that's not something that is often talked about in Black and brown communities. And I would love to talk more about that
4: today. Love that. And last but not least, Ellie. Hey, everyone. My name is Ellie. I am the CEO and founder of Elevated Academy, which is an online school that I created out of my business coaching and consulting company. I'm all about helping women start businesses and scale them by leveraging funding so that ultimately, women, we can build wealth. I'm a mother of four, which is a huge motivator and reason behind why I do what I do I am actively building wealth for my children. And my goal is to really empower other women and other moms to build wealth for the children that they have or the children that they may have in the future as well. So super blessed to be here. Very excited to continue the conversation. Absolutely.
0: So, you know, I think the first thing that comes to mind when I hear about wealth, I did not know that you could actually do that as a woman of color. I don't know any women of color who are quote unquote wealthy in my family. Right. And so just this idea that we can even do this, I think is one of the biggest barriers to us actually creating this. And let's start off with you, Ellie. What did wealth initially mean to you and how has that evolved since you've actually been able to build it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. This is such a great question. And it makes me think about my childhood. I went to a private school from a young age. My parents sacrificed to drive me all the way across L.A. to go to this super expensive school that I was on scholarship for. And I remember only associating wealth with being white, Mm -hmm. living in a huge house, you know, wearing polo and wearing those like sweaters and tying it across like that. I mean, these are the images I saw as a child. And I associated wealth with being a lawyer or a doctor because that was The parents, you know, all my friends, that's what they did. And for a long time, I was just like, well, how am I going to do this? I'm not white. I don't have polo. And I definitely don't live in Pasadena, California. But once I started my business and when I hired my first financial planner, actually, and it was a Black financial planner and started to hear some of these strategies, it was like a light bulb went off that you mean I can do this too? You mean I don't need to, you know, be wearing polo or be white in order to achieve this? And. In that moment, everything just exploded. And I realized if I could do this, I didn't learn how to do it until I had made my first seven figures, right? But it made me see that it was just a matter of education. So if I could do it and now teach myself, and that could also teach others who don't need to have seven figures in order to build wealth, you can do these things at $50,000, so at first wealth was very inaccessible to me and I thought it was only for a certain group of people. And now I associate wealth with access, you know, it's, they're one and the same to me and it's definitely motivated me in my business a lot. Yeah. That
0: representation matters, right? We need more exactly. representation of what women of color millionaires look like, women of color investors, hotel owners. It's so important to have that representation because I think that's the thing that makes a lot of people kind of that light bulb go off in their head that are like, oh shit, okay, I could do this too. I can do this. <laughs> All right, Jatali, how about you? What was wealth initially for you growing up and has that definition evolved?
1: So well for me, it was two very different spectrums. My father was very financially affluent in the space that he had a great job. He was able to travel. I saw him bring me on a lot of trips, you know, by the age of eight, I visited Egypt and certain places. So culturally, it was very different. Whereas my stepmother, my mother figure, she was really horrible with money and budgeting. And so by the age of six and a half, I noticed her and my dad separating because of the fact that she was so bad with money. And my dad is like, you're so irresponsible. This is not going to work. And she moved to New York from England. And so when she moved to New York, she moved to Brooklyn and I watched my stepmother literally live borrow to borrow, where in her particular situation, every time I visited her, rather than summertime or for Halloween, she literally lived a different place. One minute a very posh neighborhood and next minute she lived in like the projects, right? Or the next minute she lived in a palatial apartment in an area that people could only dream of. And then once again, in that same year, I might see her live in the basement of somebody's house. And so seeing her struggle like that but by the age of eight, there were certain things and even just her mannerism, gambling, trying to, you know, oh, I'm going to pay the lotto and I'm going to spend $500 in the lotto instead of paying for my rent. And I'm going to be able to make more money and then lose it all or slot machines. And watching her go through that made me by the age of eight, go back to my dad and say, like, can you teach me everything you know about money? And I am very grateful that I had someone to talk to and also very grateful that I did have that conversation with him because in my 20s, my dad passed away before I even hit 21. So there's years of knowledge that like my dad, I remembered him saying, well, when you were 18, I was going to teach you these things. And I remember saying, well, I want to, can I start learning now? And he was like, I can't see why not. And he started teaching me certain fundamentals. And I still feel like there's a lot I did not get to learn. Because in the end of the day, you don't know what you're missing until later on years later that you're like, you have someone telling you, well, it's not just to do this, but this is why I'm telling you to do this. And I'm one of those people where I learn better when you explain the fundamentals as to why I'm doing something versus just telling me to do A plus B. So my dad was more of a A plus B equals C type of person versus we're doing this and that because it's going to create this. And so there were certain mistakes that I made after he passed away that I knew. If he explained to me why we were doing certain things, I might not have made. But I was just very grateful for whatever financial knowledge he gave me. That also gave me that whole, some people talk about being hungry to the point where there's no food in the house and they have sugar, water, and bread. Because of my mother figure, I actually had that experience, right? Where she would leave a seven-year-old in a house and go work a double shift and forget to make sure that there was food in the house. And I don't know if it was forgetting or just financially not having the money to do so, But my dad, there was like steaks and lobsters and whatever you want to have. Right. So it it was really getting to experience two very different spectrums.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective that you were able to get kind of the two sides of the coin. What happens when you do have that financial stability and what happens when you don't? That's a really interesting perspective. And I think it's important also what you mentioned where. As parents, I think if you do have the information, it's not just about the didactic, like, here's what you should do. That rationale is what really makes that shift so that you can become sort of a critical thinker when you're making these decisions and you understand the why behind stuff. I think that's really important. One hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Devon, tell us about your initial wealth definition story and then how's that evolved?
2: When I was growing up in Philadelphia, where I lived, it was very, I wouldn't say poor neighborhood, but it definitely wasn't like wealthy or rich. You know, I had to go to school, like passing my drive-bys and stuff like that. And so once I went through that, my mom had me shipped to a school in a predominantly more wealthier area. And it still didn't click as far as like what wealth was. So my grandmother had very strong financial skills. She wasn't like an investor, but her account was never going to go negative. It wasn't going to do that. She was afraid of the bank. So she kept cash on her in different places around the house. To Tali's point, the fundamentals weren't explained to me. And but my mom, she wasn't invested in money management, but that's who I grew up with. So I wish that I would have really been around my grandmother more for her to break it down. Davon. this is why this is it. So I had to kind of learn along the way from the States as far as to do better. Like my dad, he wasn't really the best either until he got older. But my grandmother was the really, like she died with no debt. She paid off her funeral 10 years before she died. Her bank accounts were very healthy. She paid off two houses. Some people say, oh, you know, she lived a certain, like, no, when she retired, making $8.32 an hour. So for her to retire, making that amount, and I asked, I said, well, grandma, how did you survive? She she helped put both me and my sister through college. We didn't really have debt. And the reason why was because of me, I had scholarships with my grandma, but that was just me. Everybody was getting a loan. So I got one. Like I didn't need to get a loan. I just got a loan because everybody was getting one. So again, if I would have had somebody to break down the fundamentals, but my grandmother, she, her philosophy was, I just paid off a little bit. Whatever I had extra, she was like the first of my family to go on cruises. So my grandma was okay, but Mm. she didn't explain the fundamentals. So I didn't know anything about patience, meaning becoming a patient investor. Like when you get money, hold it, let it grow, compound interest, like it didn't click. So I wish that I would have had those strong fundamentals when I was younger, because I would have been way, oh my gosh, I can't even (laughs) describe how rich, the amount of money that I've had and had access to. And I wasted it because I didn't know the fundamentals. Like, what do you do when you get an inheritance? So when you get an inheritance, what can you do with it to invest it, to make it multiply? So that was my introduction to wealth. And so I'm least talk about as far as like retention. So that's what my goal is retention, teaching my child like what to do because I didn't grow up wealthy, but I didn't grow up poor. My son is going to live a different life that I grew up. He's living it now. He got a passport already. So he's living a different life that my family, my grandmother probably could never dream of. So my job is to teach him retention and teaching him what to do to work for his money and then to
0: grow. Absolutely. I love that perspective. And it's amazing when you look back at like, our ancestors, how much they were able to accomplish with literally scraps, right? My grandmother was the exact same way. She has already prepaid her funeral, got a paid off house. Like the woman supports herself on, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars a month in social security in Puerto Rico. And I'm just like, ma'am, I don't understand. I don't understand how you do it. But the fact is that like, I think we have in our genetics, we have the skills to survive. Now it's about learning the skills to thrive. That's that shift, right? Like what can we do with a ton if we've been able to do so much with a little bit? Anlise, how about you? So you have a unique perspective as a second generation wealth builder. So I'm curious what you saw growing up and how that idea of wealth has evolved for you.
3: So I grew up in Cameroon for the first 13 years of my life. And it's a country where maybe today there's a little bit of a middle class, but back then there was none. So it's either you have it or you don't. So I grew up very aware of the fact that my family was doing pretty well compared to most people in the country. What I thought wealth meant back then is really being able to afford nice things and experiences and you know, being able to travel around the world. Also freedom, because, you know, my parents, they became financially independent before they even turned 40. And they were, you know, investing in real estate, the stock market, but they, and they had their own businesses. We would have lunch every day. We'd have dinner together every day. And so, to me, having the opportunity to be there and be there for your family, spend time with your family, show the world to your family. And even though we didn't have a lot of conversations about money, I'm one of those people who learn by observing. So, I was able to pick up a lot of things when it comes to like investing, how you organize your affairs and trust funds and all of that stuff just by paying attention, listening. So, I learned also back then that money was a tool. It was a tool. But one thing that my parents taught me is that you don't treat people according to how wealthy they are like you have to really look at the character and that's the most important thing growing up now my views about wealth are you know still about the freedom that it gives you the options that it gives you but I would go even a step further and say that outside of the fact that I'm a second generational wealth builder because you know I inherited businesses and assets for my family what I think the most important thing that I inherited are the values, the value system. And so to me, that's like probably the most important aspect when it comes to wealth.
0: I absolutely love that sentiment. It's like the intangible things are often more important than the physical stuff. When you're talking about using money to amplify your character, like if you're a good person and you have access to money, you can do amazing things the same way that if you're a terrible person and you have access to money, you're going to do horrible things. And so that's one of the things that I think I've had to unlearn as a first-generation wealth builder and a Latina. There's a lot of demonization of wealth. There's a lot of like the biblical religious undertones that like wealth equals equals gluttony or greed, and that somehow wanting it makes you a bad person. And I'm just like, why are we glorifying the struggle? It's not cute.
3: And there's so much associated with, you know, like how people view wealth and like the negative aspect that to be really honest, I've been financially independent since my 20s. And I've been able to build wealth to a certain extent on my own. I will never call myself a self-made anything because that's just not the reality. But I was able to reach close fire in my 30s and things like that. A few years before my father passing, he actually told me what his plans were and that I was going to be a successor. And so I was already preparing myself, but I thought this is like 10 years down the line. So I have time to do everything that I want to do. And then in the future, figure out how to make this next generation or next step work. Unfortunately, my father passed away during COVID. And so as I was building my businesses, I had to now step in as CEO and figure out how to take this legacy that my parents have built and now add to it and not basically Mm -hmm. let it whatever happens to generational wealth, we've heard the statistic, not have that happen to this hard labor of work that my parents have been able to build. And really think about generations beyond my grandkids are going to be able to benefit off of the work that we're going to be putting in today. But I really struggle with being a second generational wealth builder, to be honest. Like, a little bit of shame associated with the fact that I didn't start from scratch. And I think it's because of all of the negativity that people associate with wealth. So I had to really have conversations with people. And even the people who started from scratch were like, that's actually what we want our kids to be able to experience. And we should come out and talk about this some more. So I'm glad to be here and talk about it today.
1: As to what you're saying, I think there is like this misconception that the Bible wants people to be poor. <laughs> and yeah. so for those who are Christian or who believe in the Bible, it was so interesting when I started teaching more adults, I started having church congregations reach out and say like, can you come teach financial literacy to our youth and then the adults? What I did was I actually found a bunch of Bible passages that were showing that he wanted you to be wealthy. And, you know, even in situations where like, let's say Joe, where he took away a lot from you what he took away, he gave back tenfold. And so that has been like part of like, I would say my mission, but it's definitely something whenever I go to like a church that I tackle, it's like, I don't really see a lot of places where he says he wants you to be broken poor. a certain level of humility that some of the people in the Bible might have. But a lot of people, when you think about like Abraham and these people, they have abundance. It might, the abundance might just equate different. Like they have a million cows. Back then, a million cows is basically like saying I'm a billionaire. You know what I mean? And so when I read the book, it's really perspective. And so I've been helping even people who are like holier than thou who feel like oh you're supposed to give away every last dollar that you make I'm like if that's the case then why were there so many people with abundance and riches and generational wealth in that same book that you are referring to? And so I just think, though, when we are to the point where the money becomes who we are and we're chasing money and not passion and purpose, that is where I feel like God teaches you a lesson. I feel like that's where the Bible might be like, it's about to go left, right? (laughs) And then the poverty might come. Because I feel like even in life, it goes like that, just universal law. If you don't believe in the Bible and you just believe in universal law, if you're a taker, take, take, take... It's going to get to a point when you're not giving enough that the universe is going to be like, you know what? We're going to start taking from you because you just all you do all day is take. So I think it's important that we have a balance of give and take in life. And that's also the balance of generational wealth, I feel like, because you build an organic relationship that can help you remain in the position of financial wealth, in my opinion, Mm. because we can't do this all by ourselves. It takes a try.
0: That's why it's called generational wealth, Mm. (laughs) y'all. It's going to take Mm -hmm. some time. Right? (laughs)
3: So, Jitali, I know you mentioned that you were a real estate investor. Can you share with us how you got started and how you've been able to become financially independent through real estate?
1: So I started, honestly, with wholesaling. Technically speaking, if you really talk about like the origin story, my dad gave me my first property ever. And when he passed away, that was something in Manchester, England, that I remember being a little bit more a part of that process and learning more about real estate. But once again, because it was just something that he did, I didn't understand the importance of it. And I just for a long time just kind of was just like, eh, you know, it didn't mean anything to me. And it wasn't until I left corporate and I was in the middle of maternity leave. And I realized that I was working for a company that even after maternity leave to come back and they wanted me to work crazy obscene hours as if I didn't have a newborn at home. And I remembered them questioning my ambition because of it, because I did not want to work crazy hours or lower my pay. And all these conversations started being on the table. I went to one of my cousins who at that time, he had just made his first 10 million in real estate. And I was like, well, I know you're doing good in real estate. Maybe can you let me know, you know, how can I get started deeper? Can you teach me some things? And because he was formerly working for Keller Williams, who I must say, you know, not a plug for them. They have some of the best trainings when it comes to real estate individuals that I've seen. And so my cousin gave me a lot of his books and notes and tape recordings from his classes there. And he was like, well, I need somebody to help me with wholesaling. He's like, because that's where I'm really making the most amount of money. So he started teaching me how to wholesale and teaching me the scripts. And at first it was like, we oh, would be 75 calls in and getting rejected before we get like a warm lead or a hot lead. And because of that, it just the way my brain works, being formerly investment banker and finance, I'm like, our pitch must be wrong. And so I started tweaking the pitch. That's when he actually originally at that point was when he gave me all of his notes from when he was at Keller Williams. And I started looking at all these different books and magazines, and some of them are behind me on my bookshelf. I was able to create a better script, which got us to the point where it was every 25 to 30 calls, we were getting warm leads. And a yes. every 10 warm leads turned into a hot yes, this is a sale. And so originally that's how I started. From there, I then started doing real estate syndication deals because I already was in the middle of creating kids who Bank. And I knew I didn't have the time to physically doing like a flip in certain projects. And because I didn't have that physical hands on time, that's what made me start doing some syndication deals. And those syndication deals were developers who were like, okay, well, we'll do all the work and do everything. And my cousin, I had the blessing of my cousin insuring a deal. And because he knew me and and he did that for myself and a couple of other people, it gave me a safety net that I wanted and that I needed. Because coming from a finance background, if you tell me to just give a stranger $100,000 without it being insured, I'm like, oh, my God. And there's an anxiety that came from that concept. But my cousin being like cool enough to say, hey, I'll insure the deal. That means I'm on the line so if they don't pay you within three months. I pay you out of pocket. That became something that gave me the leverage and wiggle room that I needed to start making a $50,000 commission for things that I didn't have to physically work on while building other empires and multitasking in essence and going to school as well. And then eventually it got to the flips. Then it got to like my first development projects in Ghana and now potentially doing a development project from scratch in the United States and having those kind of conversations because it gave me the grace to build out the other things that would then give me the financial stability and space that I would want or need in order to then focus and pivot attention to a flip. Because when I tell you, when you start entering the real estate space, everything that can go wrong is going to go wrong. And even like the house that my husband and I bought originally, I remember just being in this space where it was like within the first year, there were all these things that we found that the inspector missed. We know we were with this full ignorance of not realizing that these inspectors, even in their contract, there's a whole lot of gray area. And that's how all their contracts are written, right? Right. Because they basically have it built in that we're going to probably miss something. And so just realizing that and understanding that it gave me different perspectives as to why it's important to have residual income coming in. Because when the world hits, sometimes it hits you hard. It comes fast and furious, sometimes in threes. And so when I noticed that and I learned that it just, for me, I was like, I need to make sure that I always have at least two other businesses bringing in income to make sure that I can pivot where I need to pivot to.
3: You said a lot just now. Two things that I want to highlight, mention the fact that your cousin was doing well in real estate and that he gave you his, basically the material that he used to learn about real estate. And so to me, that forces the importance of this representation, just having someone who has done it before, that makes you think that you can too. And also having the right information changes situation. And so for you, Devon, the owner of three hotels. I would love to hear your story on how relationships and information made you even do all the things that you've been able to accomplish.
2: I've always been a worker post-college I think I had like three different jobs at once trying to fix up guess the property my grandma left me right to fix it up and rent it out so that was my thing because I didn't understand credit back then or business credit so Ellie I wish I would have taken your class back then (laughs) I would have like a whole nother beast okay I did not know anything about it and so I'm like working all these different jobs I'm basically self-funding my own projects didn't know anything about syndication didn't know anything about partnerships I didn't know Then I had an opportunity to move to Boston and it was a full-time job, a very well-paying job. So I didn't have to work three jobs at once. And I was able to still, you know, find my real estate projects. That's also where I learned a lot more about hotel ownership, but I'm still trying to think of ways to diversify my income because I don't believe in just having one income. And so I started getting like little side jobs and stuff because I knew that I wanted to have multiple streams of income coming in. And so when I became an entrepreneur in 2017, I had enough in my savings to do that because I've always worked so many different jobs. So I was able to, of course, my family was, how are you living this lifestyle, traveling, doing this, doing that? I was literally going around the world when I wanted to because I worked so many different jobs. I was just saving my money because I wasn't doing anything in Boston because it was too cold. And I was able to start my own consulting firm, the Vine Group, which is, will be five years in October because people at the day was like, oh, Devon Vine ain't going to last. I had to think about that. And I'm like, oh, you are going like that now. I was able to take that knowledge that I learned and I was able to get contracts. I was able to grow, build those relationships. I actually built those relationships from working in corporate America. The hotel industry is very small. The ownership in the hotel industry is even smaller. And then with Black people, is even smaller on top of smaller. It's like, it's not that many of us. And so being able to develop those relationships and then just based off the experience and knowledge that I've obtained, I was able to partner with Nassau Investments, shout out to Mike Ealy, and we acquired the Home 2 Suites in El Reno. So from understanding how to structure deals, understanding the brands and how it works, understanding how to raise capital without getting too complicated while I was in corporate, I didn't really touch on how to raise capital because you would hire people out. So my trajectory to ownership is a little different from other people because I was always in corporate. So it was always working with consultants, like never really having to figure everything out on your own at that level or understanding the creative finance. And so this is a new world business credit. All this is a new world now because the numbers were larger. So you just pay somebody and they'll figure it out for you. And so with the Reno deal, that's when I had to figure it out on my own and how to figure out how to raise capital because they didn't break it down how to raise capital because we just hired somebody to do it. So I had to figure out how to raise capital. That was the thing. And so I was able to raise capital and able to get on and partner with the deal. And then the next deal, which we did not get, but it worked out, but just learning and raising capital and building relationships. And then the Indiana deal, that's the two hotels in Indiana was a portfolio deal. Again, the relationships that I built from working in the industry. I actually been volunteering in the hotel industry since I was a college student. So just imagine 15 plus years of going to conferences, volunteering with people, still sending Christmas cards, still speaking at schools, building those relationships. So when it came back around years later, hey, I need a favor. Hey, Mm -hmm. Devon, I found this deal. Hey, Devon, I want to introduce you to somebody. Hey, Devon, I have $100,000 and I want to invest with you. All of those things, just really focusing on my brand and really just being a woman of my word, which I learned from my grandma and my dad. Being a woman of your word and really understanding the importance of relationships have helped me throughout my career. And it's something I value very dearly. Our relationships and our brand, I take that very seriously because that can make or break you. If I wasn't a woman on my word, somebody's just not going to hand you $100,000 or even $2. And so I'm big on that. And I'm big. And I guess it's come from that hospitality spectrum of me working in the front desk, like taking care of your people and taking care of your guests. So that's how I was able to build wealth creation from one, having multiple jobs. And then two, I was just tired. So now I realize
3: scaling and bringing on people. <laughs> so I don't have to work so much. I love what you said about relationships, Janice. I think recently you posted something to the extent that the relationships you have in your life are very impactful on your wealth building journey. I would love for you to expand on that.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when I think about the impact that relationships, especially intimate relationships can have on your money, I don't think it's enough emphasis that's placed on like how important the person that you decide to share a bed with. How important and impactful that can be, right? And so when we think about the idea of marriage, it's like the love is always top of mind concept, the wedding and all that stuff, but when we really think about what marriage is, it's a contract, just like a business contract. There are huge financial consequences to that contract. And I don't think that we have enough perspective on like, what exactly are we signing up for when we decide to say I do. And so I'm actually in the process of finalizing a divorce. And the amount of information that I have learned in this process is mind-blowing. How much of a financial impact marriage and divorce can have if you are a wealth builder, you are starting businesses, if you are acquiring real estate assets or stock investments, there's a lot at stake. And I think as women, especially in this generation where we are essentially the first generation of women that has access to the ability to create wealth, let's think about it, 1970s, that was a time when our mothers were born or were young And they were not able to get credit. They were not able to get loans. They were not able to have bank accounts. They weren't able to do a lot of what we have access to. And so what marriage looked like for them was financial security and stability. You needed to get married. Now we have more to lose, I would say, as women, especially as wealth builders, if we don't understand what those financial implications are of marriage and divorce. So I am like... Ladies, if you are a first-generation wealth builder, please get yourself a prenup because there is too much to lose out here. You know, for example, if you start a business while you're married, that's considered a marital asset. So if you get divorced, you're going to have to buy out your spouse, even if they never worked in your business, even if they didn't give you a dollar to start that business. That's a terrifying thought. And depending on how valuable that business is, that could be millions of dollars that you owe to somebody for nothing because they didn't do any of the work. And so just like thinking about what you have to lose when you decide to say, I
3: do, that needs to be a top of mind. And I would actually go a step further and talk about prenup post But even as you're building wealth and you're planning to transition that wealth over to your kids, what if your kid ends up marrying someone and then you're at some point, you know, the person inherits all the stuff that you work really hard to build and they don't even have like kids. So basically you work really hard to build someone else's family as well. As you build the oh, trust, <laughs> you might want to add pauses so that doesn't happen.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things I think is one of the most important things, because I am a person who both of my parents passed away before I was 21. It's one of my fears. It's one of my things that also... I don't allow it to cripple me as a fear though. I allow it to propel me into learning what can I do to make sure that my child has a good, comfortable life, regardless of if his dad and I both passed away before he's 21. And let's be honest, no matter how much you rear your child to be the most financially literate, smartest kid in the world, When we hit certain ages, like 18 and then 21 and certain ages, we do have our moments, no matter how smart we are. Because I started working in finance since I was 15 as a paid intern. 15, I started with my paid internship, like my requirements and the hours I needed. By 16, I was working as a paid intern at Credit Suisse. So I was raised in finance in the space from even a time. And when I hit certain ages, like 18 and 21, I'm not going to lie, I had my moments where I was like, I'm going to go to St. Barts. I'm rich. I'm 21. And meanwhile, it's like, no, you're not rich. Because no matter how much money you have, there's someone else with more money than you. And St. Barts is expensive. And how many times do you think in one year you're going to be able to go there? And one of the most important things you could do is a living trust. And a living trust allows you to frame out, like, if you left your child $1 million, by this age, they can have this amount. And by that age, they can have this amount. You can even bring it out till they're, like, 40 years old. It's just trickling out money. And you can also make it so that if, let's say, you leave behind an attorney to be the person who's minding this living trust, if that child has a great, brilliant business idea, and let's say you left them $10 million and they, they need $1 million of that money to put towards this business idea, you can even put a parameter around that so that the child can actually have that framed out where if they come with a business plan to the attorney and it's one that makes sense, they get embedded maybe by two or three attorneys, maybe this is something that they can release that extra money to this child so that they can follow their dream and their purpose if they decide to not do like college and certain things. I know one friend who for their living trust they made it that their child has to go to college in order to get their money. I don't agree with that per se because realistically we're living in a world where there are a lot of people who are multimillionaires and billionaires who did not finish high school. And so as such, I would not put that kind of an education ramification on it. But maybe like I could see also having something like a vocational skill. And so these are all things that you can mandatory or you can even say something as simple as, hey, I have a pet and it's a family pet. So if I die, you have to take care of the family pet. And that's a part of the living trust so it's really cool how much you can do especially when you have children so that's one less fear that you necessarily need to have and you can be alive by the way to have a living trust for your child anyway some parents will also say hey if you're a trust fund baby some of them will be like oh 25 or 30 years old when you hit this age by your 30th birthday everything's released to you i don't necessarily believe in that just because once again what if you are in a relationship with somebody who is abusive And at the age of 30, that person, when that money is released to you, the person is the one who's going to spend that money for you. So I do think it is good to have something where it's a trickle effect.
3: And so what do you guys think about, because we we keep talking about generational wealth and basically passing down wealth when we're no longer here. But I read a book years ago that was life-changing for me. It's called Die With Zero. The concept of it is that basically by the time you pass, There's nothing for you to pass down because you have already passed down your assets progressively to whomever needs them. And you have already experienced life as fully as you were supposed to by enjoying the fruit of your labor. Ellie, what are your thoughts on this?
4: Well, I definitely remember you introducing me to that book and I haven't finished it yet, but it's definitely a great one. And I think for me, I agree with that concept because I know when I started to make money or build wealth, when I first hit my seven figures, I was very much in like hoarder mentality. I have to hold on to this money. I need to see it in my account. If it goes, if I spend anything, I'm all of a sudden broke again. You know, I was still very much living in that lack mindset. And because I'm the first person in my family to ever achieve this amount of money or make this amount of money. I didn't have anyone to look to, to show me or tell me, Hey, it's okay. Like you don't have to not spend in order to maintain wealth. In fact, you need to diversify. You need to invest. You need to do things with the money in order for it to actually grow. So I definitely think for new wealth builders and as we start educating our children, it is so important to go back to what you said earlier to see money as a tool I think so much of the time when we grow up in lower to middle class situations and with single parents, money is always looked at as this thing that we have just enough of, but not enough to like really live the life that we want. And so our relationship with money from a young age is very strained where we feel like I only have a little bit. I can't ask my mom for too much because she doesn't have money. And it's always a people don't have it. We don't have it. That's the energy around it. But shifting that has been a big thing for me and helping my kids understand that this is what money is. When you're asking me for things, here's how you earn the money so that you see money as not something that is not present because it is here, but something that you work for and you earn and you gain in order for it to give you the things that you want in life. And also that you learn how to use so that it can grow later, you know? So kids always want to just ask for things. They want toys when you go to Target. It's very easy for them. And they assume mom should just spend it and buy it. But I really want my children to never feel the lack mentality that I felt, but also not be irresponsible and think, well, mommy always has it. So it's just easy for her to say yes. Instead, associate here's what I need to do to earn it, and here's what I can also do to make sure I have more money later, such as saving it and doing things of that nature. So, I definitely think it's important. And the sooner we relate wealth to education, then that's how it actually ends up lasting because leaving someone money isn't going to do anything for them, but leaving them the education, the plan, and really working with them before you just leave them a lump sum is key and something I'm really focused on with my children. I said the word earn
2: it because one of my biggest, I'm going to say fears, because I've seen entitled people. Yes. Their money was given to them or power or because of their last name. Mm -hmm. They have this sense of entitlement. I'm not an entitled person. I've worked for my money. You yeah. know, money doesn't fall on trees. I was very fortunate to have a, a grandmother who spoiled the crap out of me, but I still had to work, right? Because mm-hmm. she told me one day, I'm not going to be here. So you need to figure it out. And so she's not here. And guess what mm-hmm. I have to do? I have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I know some of you all are the first millionaires in your family, right? Mm-hmm. So to your point, Ellie, who do you talk to? And yeah, some millionaires in my family. And I didn't even know it, and so I'm like, really, really? So I could have been talking to y'all, but now they're like, well, you know, you one of us. So I'm like, wait. What? I mean, like they like, like real low key. Yeah, like real low key. And now I'm like, you're welcome oh, in the club. Now, what, girl, welcome in. The, girl, welcome to the cookout. Now, girl, <laughs> you know what I mean. I'm like, they got but they was just like Davon. This is what you need to do. This is what you, we see you moving and shaking. Like this is how you do it. This is how you do it. Kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? So, you know, this is some of the stuff you need to do for your son. This is what you have to do. And so they're teaching me different things. I wish this conversation would have been had a long time ago, but neither there. But going back to that point of that education, right? Because we are working so hard to build for our families and future generations that we're not going to meet. We don't want them to squander it. And then we don't want to have an expectation that they'll even want our business. I think a lot of times people build all these things and say, we're going to give it to our children. Jameer probably only one hotel. Like he probably, I don't want this. I want something else and I don't want this. And so I'm just trying to do whatever I can for generations that I won't see. So they won't have to struggle. It's something like with, I don't see it in predominantly white communities where they're okay with getting the wealth and they build from. They okay with using their daddy last name. Some exactly. some in, in our community, we want to work for, like we want to create a, I don't want to create a struggle. Nice,
1: like, can I add to that? You yeah. just said something, right? You're like, oh, like you're not entitled. And I feel like it's okay. There's a difference between being entitled and spoiled. Mm-hmm. I feel like the biggest difference between our side and the other side is that their children are raised entitled. Sometimes there's a lack of spoil. like there's a lack of balance. So they're spoiled and entitled, but most of 90% of their children who are from that wealthier Caucasian community will be entitled. And I feel like we need a certain level of healthy entitlement. Mm-hmm. It's important for us to walk into a room and know that we belong in the room just like anybody else that's in that room. There you go. It's okay for us to make millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And if we have a friend who's a, an attorney or a district attorney, and our child wants that interview, to get them the interview, but know that unlike the spoiled child who thinks that they're going to automatically get it because of their daddy's name, to know that they have to earn it once they're in that room. It's like our community. We work so hard for our children to have the best. And then we go, well, I made this car money. I made this Lamborghini money. You go work at McDonald's. Well, why should your child start all the way at the bottom if they don't have to? They should learn how to earn that position at the higher type and build out the relationships but that doesn't mean that they have to start at mcdonald's or start at the complete bottom of the barrel of like oh you know go outside and you have to sell lemonade till the age of 25 until you figure this out i don't think that's fair right i Um, agree with you so,
3: so i i think the reason why i'm very balanced is because i work those jobs not because my parents made me but at 16, I decided that I wanted to be a cashier. So I went and worked as a cashier. And, you know, throughout college, I was always, if I wanted to go to a concert, I wouldn't just spend my money. I would buy multiple tickets, sell them, and then go to the concert for free. That hustle mentality, I think, is very important that we teach I our agree. kids. Yeah.
1: That's, it's that hustle. And then I think on the panel, for anybody who missed it, One of the points that I made out and after the panel, a few people walked up to me and kept mentioning it. And I was saying how like my son, his dad and I, like whenever he wants something, like my husband and I would be like, look, you have to earn it. And so if he wants a dollar Hot Wheels cars, we barter with him. We create like a okay, well, it's a quarter, so dollar twenty-five. You need this whole week clean up your toys to earn a quarter every day. And when he doesn't do his part to make sure he doesn't become spoiled and entitled in a bad way, we make sure we tell him, well, then you can't earn it. You didn't have enough money to buy it. And even when it comes to bigger ticket items, when he ends up wanting the $50 toy, being like, hey, we'll meet you halfway you've been saving your money. Are you willing to spend $25 of your hard earned money on this? And we've noticed that even with his younger age and even like my older nieces and nephews and cousins, when we do that same game with them, it's so interesting. The stuff that they thought they needed and wanted so badly when they have to spend their money, how much it's no longer a need or a necessity and they no longer are interested in it. And so like to Annalise point with the whole she created like it was changing your mind frame you change your mind frame as a grinder you're like oh you know what if I buy multiple I could flip some of these and so even with when we go into high schools with Kids Who Bank we teach kids like do you know that some of these Georgians if you buy them you might buy it at $120 and three weeks later if it's sold out you're able to sell it at five six seven hundred dollars and so it's just teaching our children once again love language of money right what is that money language how does it translate how do you multiply it and how do you maintain it
3: I love that because I think on one end of the spectrum, we build the wealth. And then, as you mentioned, we want our kids to struggle or we are on the other side of the spectrum where we build the wealth and we just give them everything and they don't appreciate it. So we have to find like a middle ground that is going to be also beneficial for our kids so that they understand the value of things and they understand earning and investing and all those things so that they can do it on their own. Because if we don't do that, then they will be left with whatever you built and have no idea what to do with it.
0: Absolutely. I think it's important for us to stop Glorifying the struggle and weaponizing privilege, because I think the word privilege comes with a lot of negative connotations in our community. Right, like we like to throw it at people like daggers, like, "Oh, that's nice, you could do that because you have privilege." But it's like, why wouldn't we want to aspire to that? We already know what the struggle looks like. Can we opt into something else? Can we stop making it seem like that we are not worthy of having the privilege to set our kids up for success, to mm-hmm. to make change in the world, and to stop into this glorification of struggle. I think we need to do that as a community, just move on from this narrative that,
4: somehow there's a nobility with it because I don't think there is. I've been like actively trying to do in my friend circles and in my family to counter that because I've noticed it a lot. And since becoming the seven-figure earner, some of the people that I knew growing up are acting different, Mm -hmm. you know? I think funny. All of a sudden I'm changed because I have money or, you know, I'm not coming around anymore. You're too good for us. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. it's like no, I'm still the same person. I'm just moving different. And so, Something that I'm actively doing within my own family is I started these family wealth nights and, you know, we might get together how families get together for game nights. Our first one is this Saturday and I'm like, let's all come together and I'm going to teach you guys the same way I teach these people online because, you know, your family don't be buying your classes. It's fine. Let's all come together. I'm going to teach you guys these things. And I think one way that we can help to get rid of some of that attitude that you're mentioning is is just to try to democratize the information. And it's hard because it's another thing that we have to carry essentially. But I think that is one of the only ways to get rid of some of that feeling is by showing them, hey, I'm not any more special or different than you. I just made a decision to get started. Like you can have this privilege too. I'm not holding you back from having it just because I got it first. As people of color and as Black people especially, we have so much trauma to unlearn because of the fact that we really do have this, if you get it, that means I can't get it type of mentality. And we have to see now we have all the same true access to be able to do this because of how open the education is. And the only thing that's going to make people see that more is to increase the conversations, to make it normal to talk about money, to make it normal to talk about credit, to make it normal to call people out and say, hey, you're going shopping, but you don't own a property yet. And make that a part of these relationships so that it's no longer, oh, such and such got it and we don't see them anymore. It's such and such got it and she told me something I could do to get it too. I think that's going to be a great way to kind of get rid of some of that negative stigma. I love it's also that. a mindset too, right? So it's yeah. like we can have all this education.
2: I mean, we all pretty much do similar things, right? So we teach yeah. some people, we can give them all the knowledge in the world. They can take every course, read every single one of our books. And they're still like, we don't get it. They become mad at us. And I'm like, what did you do to work? It's just like with the mindset. So the people who we grew up with, the family, we all pretty much coming from the same place and they're upset with us. Cause it's just like, how you make it? And I didn't, it was just like, was just the mindset shift. Are you willing
1: to embrace the uncomfortable?
2: Right. Are you willing to take risk? And you know, I had a lot of people along my journey, I don't know if y'all experienced the same thing, where they were basically like, Davon, don't do it. We don't think it's a good idea. And I thought about this along my journey. They probably didn't think it was a good idea because it's something that they wouldn't do. They're projecting on things that they couldn't do or won't do because they're afraid to do it. But we all are having this conversation right now and created the platforms that we've created because we wanted to do what was best for us. And we took that risk. So regardless if it didn't work or not, we still took that risk and now it's working and now we're continuing to do it. And now we're building a
0: platform to help more women and more people who look like us do the same thing just to take that risk. Absolutely. Love that sentiment, ladies. Okay. In the last five minutes that we have together, I would love for each one of y'all to share your biggest gem that somebody can do right
3: here, right now to start building wealth. I'll start with you, Annalise. It starts with the mindset start thinking that you can and educate yourself so that you can take action and be consistent with it. And after that, the result is inevitable. Love it.
1: How about you, Jitali? Mine is going to be something actionable that you guys can actually get started to doing, especially if you have children. And if you have no children, these are things you could do for yourself as well. But for those who are parents, start building a child's credit. You know, one of the things that the other side does that I think is beautiful is that by the time their kid is 17, 18 years old going to college and they get their first like official credit card, they already have like a 740 credit score. And the reason is because their parent from the age of normally 13, 14 years old allow piggybacking. And so if you're a parent who has bad credit and you're like, oh, well, I can't do that because I have bad credit. Guess what? You could still get a prepaid card for your kid. And while you're teaching them about credit, so to give you an example, let's say your child has at the age of 14 has an allowance of $100 for the whole month for like after school treats and for the money that they spend to go to like the bus if they don't get it for free or whatever their budget is monthly. Instead of just giving it to your child via cash, you could put that on a prepaid credit card. And then that child, as they're paying and using that prepaid credit card, they learn to lessons one if they use all the money that's on that card they learn that hey guess what now that the money's gone you're in trouble buddy because we're not giving you any more money you spent your whole budget one time and they're learning how credit cards actually work, which is if you spend the money, that's it. And then the second thing is it starts to help build their credit. So even if you have personally bad credit, 99% of the time you can get a, some kind of a prepaid credit card, like a Capital One prepaid card, and you make that their budget. And that way the child by the age of 16, 17, whenever they decide to go to college or whatever they want to use their credit for, they actually have good credit. Because we live in a country where cash is becoming almost obsolete. And even in, in certain countries around the world now, they're starting to they're going to get rid of cash altogether, and it's really going to become a debit and credit card world and a crypto world. You have to make sure that your kids actually know how to utilize credit in the right way, because credit can be your best friend, but it can also be your like prisoner. Awesome.
4: How about you, Ellie? I think that's something actionable women or anyone listening really can do right now, especially if they are mothers, is to start investing for their children I am so, so, such a big advocate for this because it really is your way of ensuring that by the time your children are 20, 30, 40 years old, that there's money there for them. And I I believe that there's no better way to prepare your child for the future than to start super young. So opening things up like a 529 account, if you think that college is in the equation for them, but even other than that, a regular investment account, a UGMA or a UTMA, opening up a custodial Roth IRA, which would mean hiring your child into the business. But that's another great way to teach them the concept of earning money, to teach them the concept of saving and investing. And the younger you start, the more they will have. And it's something that you can do with your child. You can show them their investment account. You can allow them to choose the stocks. And before we know it, we're building these tiny little investors who already grow up with this concept of seeing money as a tool. So they have less of that negative money mindset that we grew up with because our parents didn't know. So that's definitely an immediate thing you can do today. Love that. And Devon, Real quick, for the folks who aren't good
2: with money, because a lot of people put out disinformation and you're like, but I don't have anything, right? Start small. Whatever mm-hmm. dollars you have left, whatever change you have left, put in the piggy bank. And I know uh, Jatali just mentioned how we're going into a debit card where there's some banks, I'm not a financial advisor, there's some banks that you can use that takes your spare change every time you swipe your debit card, put it into something that you cannot see. Mm -hmm. If you cannot see it, you won't spend it. So put it into account that's far, you'll be surprised, check on it
0: months, year from now, how much money you've accumulated because you haven't touched it. I love that. And I would say, I'm really a firm believer that what you want will wait for you until you're ready to receive it. So if you want to build wealth, the first thing you have to do is make that mindset shift and then start taking those actions one by one to really create the life that you want. It's not too late. You haven't missed the boat. You can absolutely make a change that is going to not only change your life, but it's going to change future generations. So I just want to say thank you to all of you for being so generous with your time, your knowledge. We're going to make sure to link all of the places where folks can find you, follow you, consume your content. And just thank you for representing what wealth in our communities can look like.
2: I'll send it to y'all. Bye-bye, y'all. Thanks. bye Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, The Ultimate Blueprint for Becoming Poderosa with Your Dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa.